Not so long after he died, one of the great philosophers of the 1990s released a song called More Money, More Problems. But is that right? Should it be More Money, Less Problems? Well, the book that I'm discussing with its translator for this episode might help you arrive at an answer to that question. The book is Graft, the translator is James Trapp, and I'm Angus Stewart, and you're listening to the Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast. Before we leap ahead to that discussion, I'm going to serve you up three items in the Trotrific News, the Translated Chinese Fiction News. The first news item is a bit of a callback to a past episode. You may remember that I talked to the translator Mei Huang about her translation of Chiu Changting's Raining Zebra Finches. And at the time when we discussed that story, it was on its way to publication, and now it is published. Published in English translation in the Massachusetts Review. I believe to read the story, you've got to purchase all of the latest issue of the Massachusetts Review. So you can go do that on their website that is linked to in the show description, the show notes under news items. You'll see it right there. The second news item is a book club discussion. It was the online Confucius Institute in the UK's Open University. Not that recently, March 24th, they held an event on Jiaping Wa's Backflow River, as translated by Nikki Harmon, and the discussion had no less than four translators present. There as facilitators was Nikki herself and Emily Jones, and there were two other uh, gentlemen translators there as well, Dylan Levi King and Nick Stember. So I have not watched this one, but it is there to stream. You can watch a recording of discussion at the page linked to in the show notes, and there's a transcript as well. You can get to that through the same page. So if that sounds up your alley, if you are a Jia Pingwa head, a Pingwa head, Jia head, a Jia head, there we go. If you're a Jia head, then go check that one out. Okay, third item. Uh, this is a pointer to my rivals, the Chinese Literature Podcast. I believe this one was uh, Lee Moore flying solo. I, I think possibly he's flying completely solo now on the show. But in any case, he his episode was on poetry from sex workers in Dalian, the, the northern Chinese city. So something a little bit different, I guess. He said in his in the description, because again, I've, I've not actually listened to this, that he uses the poem to tackle issues of gender in China. It's just about 14 minutes long, and as you might have guessed, there's some explicit language. So if you're looking for something a bit different, let's say, and that's piqued your interest, go check it out, go listen to it. But do bear in mind, of course, that for every episode of the Chinese Literature Podcast that you stream or download, you need to stream or download five of mine. It's just the rules, I'm sorry, but it is what it is. That is all for the Churchific News, so I will wished, I will zip my mouth, and I will let you guys enjoy my interview with James discussing the mighty graft. So let's get grafty. And let's never say let's get crafty again. That that wasn't good. Okay, enjoy the interview. So on the show, I have James Trapp, the translator of a book called Graft. So James, wonderful to have you here. It's we've we've spoken before uh, via the medium of Zoom, but this is your first time on the show. So would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes, well, good evening, and yeah, pleasure to be here. Where to begin? Well, what I am now is um, essentially a full-time 
um, freelance uh, translator of primarily um, contemporary Chinese fiction. It's a career I've come into quite late in life and, and accidentally. Um, previously, I've been, well, going back, I took my degree in Chinese a long time ago at, at SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies at London University. I graduated in ah, 1981. And subsequently, I covered quite a lot of ground in various ways, waiting for China to become mainstream uh, in the West, as it were. Um, so most recently and relevantly, I've been I've taught Mandarin in primary and secondary school settings, um, oh, mainly cool. as after school clubs. Uh, this was at the beginning when uh, I used to I used to run after school clubs. Um, and then I got involved with a company called Bamboo Learning. And with them, we co I, I co-authored games of work for primary Mandarin for the last Labour administration, which gives you an idea of how long ago that was. Oh. Uh, sadly, we, we, we're about two-thirds complete, and then with the change of regime, the entire project was just shelved. Um, uh, huge. Yeah, great, a great waste of time and, and everyone's money. Um, uh, subsequently, I worked at the British Museum in the education department. I was China education manager there. Um, I got that job on the back of the, the big um, First Emperor Terracotta Army exhibition. There, I was. Uh, I was initially oh, really? hired to write all the educational material for that, uh, and and at that point there was a great enthusiasm for trying to develop um, Chinese um, provision at the museum. The, the then director Neil McGregor was all gung ho about it, but somehow it all just, as these things do, just petered out. But I had a very supportive boss in the education department who who kept me on for as long as he could, trying to build up the the um, the provision at the museum, but. You can't create a demand where there isn't one. And since China doesn't figure on the uh, the English curriculum anywhere or very in very few places um, and uh, school visits to museums are dictated by curriculum demands. Um, so we, we it didn't really ever take off. And I left there just uh, having just done most of the work on the big Ming exhibition, which must have been about seven years ago. It was a fabulous exhibition of the Ming dynasty. And then went to work at the Confucius Institute at the Institute of Education, um, uh, University of London, uh, where I was leading a five-year project to try and develop um, primary school Mandarin on the back of the government's um, ill-fated primary um, MFL initiative, which was was um, actually turned out to be pretty much of a joke. Um, but I did. I, I developed um, more materials there, con- concentrating a great as far as I could on combining culture and language, because my, 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 one of my underlying beliefs about teaching Chinese is that you need to teach as much about the country and the culture and the history as you do the language, because the two work so intimately together. And, and there's really little point in learning, a, trying to learn a language in isolation. So that's always been my, that was always my kind of um, shtick in, in education. Um, that project ended um, and wasn't refinanced. Um, uh, but at which point I happened to, to meet a, a chance meeting at the um, Frankfurt Book Fair with um, one of the directors of, of Alan Charles Asia Publishing, um, Ying Matheson, um, who asked me if I fancied having a go at translating um, a novel that they had. Um, I didn't know at the time that I think it had been turned down by about three other translators because of its length and complexity. And, and I and my gung-ho man, I said, yes, I'll give it a go. <laughs> um Thoroughly enjoyed it. That was um, the Sun Tzu Da Zhuang, the 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 Wang Hong Jia, the the story of the Sung Dynasty um, judge come crime scene investigator Sun Tzu, 
Um, so it's, it's it was um, yeah early Chinese CSI. Um, oh. Fascinating book, great book. Yeah. Um, and and then it just went on from there. And I've been in pretty much permanent employment um, translating novels ever since. Hmm. The anecdotes about the sort of house of house of sand that is not a phrase. The sandy foundation, the slippery. Nope, I've completely blown that. <laughs> what do you call that? Unfirm. I know that I know. There's a phrase that that I'm we're now both for something. for, and I can't think what it is. The shifting sands of education. Shifting policy. sands. Be... <laughs> That's it. Yeah, the shifting sands of uh, government. Well, yeah. money, money, and the government. Well, I mean, not just that, but also the total lack of understanding of the of the importance of teaching um, modern foreign languages from an early age as possible. Um, it's just something that, the, for some reason, the British don't get, or the English in particular just don't get. And it's a great shame because it has, you know, learning any foreign language has has a huge amount to offer. Chinese um, more than most. And the earlier you start, the easier it is because kids don't ask stupid questions about languages. They accept that this is another way of saying something and they get on with it. Whereas once you get to about the age of 13, 14 and, and then adults, they're, they're determined to ask, oh, why does it do this? Why doesn't it do that? You don't need to know. This is how it. Anyway, um, so but no, the English the English attitude to teaching modern foreign languages is 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 a total disgrace. Right. I'll leave it at that. Right. Tell us what you really feel. Uh, <laughs> I could send us charging straight into the more about sort of the slippery world of money, government, rise uh, and fall. I'll just share a quick anecdote. I may have shared it on the show before, but new listeners won't have heard it. My little sister, who is. Uh, in her mid mid and later teens now when she was in primary school there was talk of the school introducing uh mandarin potentially it was up against two competitors uh, and they were spanish and urdu mm. and all i guess they all had different sorts of rationales spanish was in there i guess because it's uh it's close i suppose it's close-ish to english it's a western european language it's spoken by a large part of the world, thanks yeah. to South America. Mandarin, because you know it's the supposedly the the big up and comer. If you want to, if you want to engage with China, Mandarin's the language to learn. And then Urdu, it's almost like the opposite. It's the local because yeah. every class will have. Well, no, I, I don't know about every class, but lots of the kids at the school um, are from kids. They're from families with a Pakistani background, and maybe. Yeah their parents or grandparents or whoever have much better Urdu than they do English. So they were yeah. all competing and I don't really know what the outcome was. Possibly the outcome was none of it was, uh, none <laughs> most, of it went most ahead. Likely it wasn't implemented mainly because they would have had no money to implement it. Yeah. Yeah. That's that was, it. That was, just, just to add another level of, of anecdotal um, idiocy um, when um, the this government's well, it wasn't this government who was on the on the throne at the time, Cameron, I suppose. Um, and Michael Gove was education secretary. They named six target languages, six for um, for um, primary MFL. Two of those were Latin and Greek. <laughs> so you know, I think that's all you need to know. Uh, yes, that's the that's uh, that's the old school Conservative Party. It's not. Yeah. It's not even like the Thatcherite Conservative Party. Anyway, speaking of politics, the party money, um, yeah. we're talking about a book called Graft, and it is basically about two guys who rise up through the world of sort of the muddy world of the Chinese state and the Chinese business. They have a 
maybe as one might expect in a novel about people engaging in corruption, a, a rise and a fall. That's a really, really basic uh, summary. But I wonder, as the translator, do you have an elevator pitch for uh, Li Peifu's graft? Uh, yes, it, 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 it taps into one of the main things that everybody in the West thinks they know about China, which is that it's it's built on a, on corruption. Yeah. Um, and that this gives uh, a, a, and also it, it kind of destroys um, the preconception um, that it's that that corruption is something that's not talked about in China. This is this right. everything in this book is absolutely out in the open. It's actually based on real life events. Um, it without wanting to give too much away, um, it, it ends with the execution of a deputy governor of a, of a um, province in um, the the Yellow River Valley in the Central Plains. Um, and and this is uh, for for the murder of his second wife, uh, and this is actually based on fact. Um, and corruption novels are a, a, a distinct genre in China. This and this is, I think, one of the best because actually it shows you the mechanisms of uh, behind what we call corruption, but which um, the Chinese view more benignly. Um, perhaps there's a splendid Chinese term, guanxi connections which can cover a whole load of things. But it's, uh, I think its most saleable point, its most, or its most readable aspect, is the way it plunges you into uh, um, areas of Chinese society which are essentially closed to most Westerners. Um, we're in a provincial town, not in one of the big cities. We're in a provincial capital and out in the countryside. Uh, and it, it covers the tensions um, the, that existed at this particularly fraught time, because we're in the 1980s, um, when China's just opened up and and everything. Uh, I, I was visiting, sorry, this is not an elevator pitch anymore, but there we go. Um, we'll be, we've left the elevator, now we're on the top floor and we can enjoy the view. We're on the top floor, yes. <laughs> it's... It, it takes it. I suppose it's its strongest. It, it's its strong suit. Its selling point is that it takes you into areas of Chinese society that most Westerners know nothing about, um, and throws a light on the um, murkier um, internal workings of Chinese society. Right. I thought your point about how it takes something your average Westerner thinks they know about China that it's corrupt and. It also undercuts or subverts that by, well, one, revealing that this book is, you know, it's publishable and it's not beyond the pale for China's censors. I was also thinking, I think in the assumption that China must be corrupt, that maybe a lot of Westerners have, I think it's a simple and not unjustified line of thinking that, oh, it's a communist authoritarian state and that means it's corrupt. So the logic would go, the more communist it is, the more corrupt it must be. But I think this novel, I don't know if it really tells you this, but we can see how corruption is maybe more just about the particular circumstances any state is in. Because one of the specters, if you like, that's haunting this book is the recent past, the Mao era, which mm. for all its terrible failings, um, massive financial corruption wasn't really one of it. One of them. It was a it was a time which did have a moral code. Say what you like about the moral code, but it had one. And corruption wasn't endemic in Chinese society. It was. If if I've I have I've read a book about this, a book by Jeffrey Kinkley on um I think it's crime and anti-corruption fiction. I forget the name, 
but that one kind of fleshed out what I already roughly knew that corruption in in the PRC was sort of began it really got the ball the ball got rolling during the 80s during the market reforms yep. and then yeah. if I'm right bloomed was uh, in full swing in the the 90s and I think the 2000s and now yep. it's with a sort of return of authoritarianism that it's being brought mm. to heal a bit not not to say authoritarianism is great but yeah, that's the sort of. Well, I mean, it's clear yeah. because you know China was was a notoriously um, it ran on corruption in the, in the dynastic period, certainly in the Qing right. dynasty towards the end of the Qing dynasty and and into the Republican period, and as right. you said, it was the introduction of of communism that temporarily at least um, <laughs> seemed to stem that almost inevitable tide, but once the the gates were open to Western style. Um, capitalism in kind of um one of the immediate imports or, or one it was a return to it wasn't an import it was a return to to the old ways in a new context right so, yes i mean it it corruption has been endemic in china for millennia as far as one can tell um yes it's and, wrong wrong of me to exclude everything that came before uh the the communist revolution that's silly of me um, so yeah, but but certainly, it, it, as far as we know, um, corruption was. I mean, I don't. I'm not. I, I'm not an expert on 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 corruption in the Mao period, but certainly, I think you're right that it was it was minimal, presumably because the the penalties were severe, and also the opportunities presumably were limited. Though, as, as you say, as soon as constraints went, I mean, I'm currently working on a. I seem to have made a speciality out of corruption novels, so I'm working on my third one at the moment. Um, which is set in the early 2000s in a state-owned enterprise, um, a, a, a big energy conglomerate in, in North China. And um, the levels of corruption and, the, and the, 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 the amounts of money involved in that are mind-blowing. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, um, it does seem to be... I mean, I presume I mean, when corruption is endemic in most societies where money buys you what you want. For sure, yeah. I'm not accusing anyone of corruption here, but in my previous job, I was in a pharma uh, trade magazine. So I was learning all about the lots of aspects of the pharma industry and all sorts of things about the science are inconceivable and amazing to me, a humanities graduate, but also the um, sums of money that were involved in like funding rounds or purchases of, uh, you know, IP from one company to another some of them were like, oh, one one million pounds. Okay, that's a large house, or one million dollars actually. All the money's measured in dollars, but others would be like um, three hundred billion. Yeah, and it'd be like, okay, if you skimmed off zero point one percent from three hundred billion, you'd still be doing pretty good. Yeah, like so. Yeah, the bigger the pot, and then the smaller cut you need to take. Similar sums of money are being talked about in the in the novel. I'm I'm talking about them, sort of one and a half billion yuan commission fees being paid and things like you know it's just crazy but there we are yeah yeah it sort of becomes unpinned from real value and yeah things we can conceptualize with concrete i don't know like uh things that we can pin to material objects that we'd be using the money to buy i'm gonna i realize i'm getting worryingly abstract so i'll take us to the more sort of uh concrete side of the book that we can begin discussing uh characters moral problems and the plot. So I guess that's a bit of a sandwich because moral problems aren't, that's more abstract. But anyway, um, 
I'll introduce our two main characters. Uh, we've got Lee. Yeah, you say two. I'm interested. I'm interested to see who you think ah. two main characters are. Okay. Well, I'll I'll throw you a softball here. I'll name two, and then you can say, "Naha, you've forgotten uh, the others." But yeah, the we have. I I would say the two um, front front running main. I don't know. Yeah. Our, our two initial protagonists, anyway, are Lee Dolin and now what is he called? Leo. Liu Jinding. Liu Jinding, that's right. Yeah. And it's sort of a master and apprentice style deal. Um, I guess it's like a Obi-Wan and Anakin deal. Well, because... it, it, yeah, I was thinking <laughs> about that because it's a little mysterious because it's not entirely clear why uh, initially. Um, um, oh, no, sorry, because I've introduced the third one, um, Sierra Chan. Get ahead of yourself. There's a middleman, there's a there's a, an entrepreneurial middleman, the, the really successful one in the novel, who actually he is the one who initially um adopts almost the young lad, son mm. of a of a gardener, Liu Jinding, yes. and and um finesses his way into a better education and then into university and then into it to meet the professor and so on. so there's this shadowy figure, or not so shadowy, he's quite well defined in fact, but it's never quite clear. Why he's doing it? Mm, um, yes, he's if he's if it's about Guan Xi about doing favors to get them back, then he seems to have a lot of confidence in his investments because yeah, he must he's he doing must a lot of favors. A winner, yeah, yeah. Like I was thinking when he first does a character a favor, I was using my sort of um, simple law Wai knowledge. Ah, this is Guan Xi. He's only helping this young man to to get something back later, but then he saves him and bills him out again and again and you see him doing favors for other higher up figures and it's like maybe this is just the guy who likes doing favors <laughs> maybe he's or just a, a nice a man guy who likes to feel that he's in control yeah uh, it's, or it's, a guy a, who likes praise from the the powerful but yeah he's he's yeah. he's an odd figure i mean they're all actually the most straightforward is probably the um you mentioned the other lee Derlin, who's this this slightly otherworldly professor of agriculture <laughs> whose only dream is really to to develop a a, a, a wheat that, that that actually puts out two ears per stalk rather than one or I think, um, and he he's kind of he's he's the um, I suppose the hero he's the central character in the book because it it, it all centres around what happened to him at the beginning and end he's the he's the he ends up as the governor who's executed, yeah um, but he's kind of at the he's. He's an innocent abroad almost, and he, he's being tossed around at the whim of all these other people, um, particularly mm-hmm. um, the pairing of, of Xie Zhichang and, and Liu Jinding. Um, yeah. I kind of thought going in, just, you know, based on uh, the con- conventions of storytelling and stories I've read and seen in films before, that the master figure, Li Lin, the teacher, he's going to be a corrupting figure. And this younger man... Liu Jinding will have to make the choices and um, will either be corrupted or uh, forge his way through. But really, yeah, Li Dilin is like the conflicted conscious conscience of the novel. And Liu Jinding is like the sort of uh, moral example of the guy you really should not be. Yeah, although I think the guy you should really not be is, is Xie Zhichang. Um Certainly, uh, Li Dilin is, I mean, he, he seems to be spent a lot of time baffled by what's happening to him um he doesn't yeah. really understand because it's not he's not he's not 
been out to seek any of these honours or whatever, but people keep thrusting them on him and keep taking him out for dinner and, and so on. Uh, and he, But his problem is he just goes along with it. Um, one presumes in the hope that it will allow him finally to, to get on with the work he really wants to get on with, um, mm-hmm. which it doesn't. Uh, Liu Jinding, I find, is he's a very... I'm not, he's not a sympathetic character um, because he's, he's too much of a chancer, but he's quite an endearing one. Um, but there's this, this, this eminence grise in the background pulling all the strings, which is this, this entrepreneur. Um, yeah. goes from being a local flower dealer. It's, it, I, I thought I was mistranslating when I first came across this, this, um, um, this flower person, a Huayan. Um, but this area, the area that, that the novel is set in is famous for its, for, for growing, um, ornamental flowers. And this chap starts right. off as a middleman um, in the in the local flower market, and somehow he parlays this up through connections. We have to presume there are lots of other little Liu Jindings wandering around as well, <laughs> who he's controlling. Um, but he parlays this up into becoming a really high-powered businessman with his finger in all sorts of pies, land development, hotels, the lot. Um, and I suppose that's one of the one of the lessons of this is is what was possible in those days from not very much if you had the the uh, the will you could get almost anything um, with right. money, but he he's definitely he's he I think he's the he's the um, he's certainly the villain of the book I think. Right, I was I was gonna compound what you were saying about Lee Dillon being kind of otherworldly. I think that's a great turn of phrase because he's he's from a sort of a higher, more rarefied world, academia. And his big mission, I think it's very interesting, this mission that's happening in the 80s, where he's trying to do something that essentially would be serving the people. He's, it's something yeah. that would produce a cheap way to double um, food production, which Absolutely. for a country of huge numbers of not very, mostly or largely not very wealthy people is a great solution. And it's coming, it's not coming from like struggle or ideological strivings. It's not or, scientific glory. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. So it's not being done through sort of traditional 20th century communist means, as in the previous era. He's using uh, science. The 80s yeah. is the sort of big return of uh, a focus on what is it like science, seriousness, you know, much more ob- yeah. objective stuff than uh, political ideology is being used to serve the people. And he's uh, kind of an angelic example of that. But, but the problem is he's at the same has, time, he's a, yeah. he's, a, he's, he's a very old fashioned figure. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's a country boy, um, and his his tastes are very simple. Um, his attitude, he says, is very simple. He just wants to get on with his work because he thinks it's going to be of great benefit. Um, and he doesn't understand what's going on around him. I mean, yeah. he's a kind of innocent abroad, but he's very one of the, the tensions. There are a lot of tensions in this book between uh, and 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 you have tensions between. The country and the city, um, between the traditional and the modern, you have um, tensions between um, different age groups and so on. It's all about these tensions that, and and the um, the connections that are that are that are built within those tensions and how often it's the tensions that um, that are not catered for. They're they're unexpected. They're or they're they're not they're not they're not allowed for. 
Mm-hmm. Um, somehow they know they're there, but they don't take because there's everyone's in so much of a hurry to keep going and keep going and drive forward. They don't stop to look at what's happening and 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 how things are actually underneath the surface falling apart because of these t- the tensions between these these different factions or factors. Right. That my next question was going to be about the morality and moral problems in the story and i was going to ask you can it all be boiled down to the private and the personal as in like you know your personal interests will uh, your private interests will cause you to commit sort of misdeeds in the public with public money or or what have you or you'll your private interests will cause you to do terrible things to the public to real people even if they're strangers but i think that private versus uh versus public and so on is just another one of many contradictions that we've just rattled off there um you you reminded me there's a really uh, one of the one of those two contradictions or conflicts the countryside and the city plays yeah. out in um i think it's more or less in, or largely in Lidlin's two marriages where i think yeah. correct me if i'm yes. wrong but his first one he marries a sort of someone who's much more urban and sophisticated than him. And, and she's she w- the daughter of one of his professors when he at university, yes. Right, and she's got no time for his country ways. And then I believe it's it sort of the reverse that happens in his second marriage. Um, He's become this sort of... he He's picked up a lot of the social nuances and then he ends up with a much more crass uh, wife. Yeah, who, who initially brought along as his, his um, housekeeper and nanny because he has a child with his first wife. Um, though the the the, the uh, yes, the, so the first wife is very much an urban sophisticate, but she's she's captivated by by um, the leader Lin's um, am, not his but by his dedication to his work, and and she admires him greatly for that. But but that's not that turns out not to be enough. Um, and there's a no. there's a genuinely horrific scene when um, leader Lin finally um, feel he has to take his he has he's tried to keep his new. His, his wife, his new wife, away from his village um, because he knows what they're like and what it's like. But but family pressure gets him and he's he's forced to to go back for a wedding celebration, um, a wedding feast in his in his his old village, which is obviously very rural, very much out in the sticks. Um, and it ends up with um, him being taken away to get and getting um, paralytically drunk. Whilst the other young men of the um, of the village escort the new wife up to the um, the marriage chamber, and um, I don't, it's not actually a rape, but it's certainly a group grope. Um, she's she's um, she's violated by this this group of, of of almost bestial villagers who think this is what they do. This is part of the of the old country wedding night, and 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 it's quite horrific. And and that's basically that. Is the beginning of the end for their marriage, but it's it's very dark. Um, yeah. But it's also presented as something that is this is this is the old culture. This is this is this is what went on in the villages. This is how we we did things, um, and that's the starkest um, illustration I think of this of the contrast between between town and city, which is a subject you find in in many many novels, of course. But um, it's it's a very stark presentation there, and in fact you feel that. The, the the Lee Dolin is a genuinely more at home actually in the village overall. I think he's not that comfortable in 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 the urban surroundings. Yeah, yeah I think it's definitely a, a pattern I've noticed in pretty much every time I've read a translated Chinese novel by a 
an offer from around Li Peifu's generation, if it's set in the countryside, especially if it's somewhere up north, um, there's going to be moral corruption. The main characters are most likely all going to be kind of men. Many of them will be a bit venal, and probably at least one awful thing will happen to a woman. It's yeah. uh, it's yeah. like a, <laughs> I mean, I I don't want to sound like I'm judging this book. Um, there's nothing wrong with being part of a pattern, but I I did I did sort of recognize it in in that pattern. Um, I I want to before I mean we we already did the characters section, but I, there's one more character it'd be fun yeah. to talk about. He's also facing um, the contradictions of history. I'm sounding more and more Marxist, uh, not intentional, <laughs> but he really does. It is a yeah. contradiction of history and uh, technology and generations. Um, so he's the detective who's called in to investigate the corruption case. Um, and he's just, he's a real pleasure to read. And he, he jumps in about halfway through. Um, yes, he suddenly appears, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah, with his odd name, with his double barrel surname and, and so on. He's, um, he's an intriguing character. He, I, I suppose for... for um, for our listeners, um, imagine a kind of Chinese Jack Regan from the um, from the Sweeney, um, old-fashioned copper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would be it would be easy for him to come off as a cliche like this, hard, uh, hard as nails, um, ruthless, morally inflexible results, guy. Yeah. But it's, I mean, that is there, but it's written very compellingly, I thought. And then he becomes more three D when you learn about his relationship with his son and i thought this is i mean you said the book is set in the 80s but it goes i guess through these guys a long long period in their lives yeah because uh, this son is uh he's i don't know if i i'm not entirely sure if we could call him like a streamer um like if he's streaming live video gameplay but basically he's, he's a, a game he, he's a game master isn't yeah he really? he's a yeah. celebrity of some kind yeah whether it's uh not like a 2007 style um, major league gamer, or whether it's like a 2016 style uh, video yeah, game I, streamer. I, was I don't a know. Bit confused by by that because you say there seems to be a bit of a time shift there, but uh, mm. but I'm, I I, may, I I don't know what was going on in uh, <laughs> China at that time. They may well have have, have been ahead of us in games. So I know I, Korea was was right in okay. there. Uh, I don't know about the PRC. Yeah, well, Korea's crazy. Yes, they were absolutely crazy. Yes. Anyway, but yes, it's it's that's that is it is it's it's a, a well drawn relationship. You feel you can feel the tensions, and again, it's a bit of it. It's this. There's a lot of incomprehension, I think, here because we had we've had Lida Lin not understanding really what's going on around him, and 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 this policeman who's watching his. Both his profession change all around him as 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 these slicker juniors come up and and get promoted above him and so on and and also watching his son disappearing into a world which he simply doesn't understand. Yeah, it's so we start off with a guy from the countryside baffled that his wife doesn't want him to smoke in the house, and then we get a dad baffled that his son has like a gamer girl e girlfriend. Uh, yeah, and, and is making um, you know, six times the amount of money he does just from sitting around, as far as he can tell, doing nothing on a computer. That's yeah. an understandable grievance, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the characters we talked a bit about, but the moral problems. Do you want to dig any more into moral problems, or do we do we want to sort of summarize the tragic well, trajectory think, of the plot? The thing that strikes me is that. 
they don't really i don't think the characters really see we see we see moral in the west we see moral problems in black and white pretty much whereas in this you you don't you feel that quite a lot of them really don't think they're doing anything wrong mm. um so you know they they don't really have huge moral battles with themselves they have more practical ones so it it's the practicality of being immoral rather than the immorality of being immoral if that makes sense yeah it's a, it's off well it's often a means to an end I, I i confess it's been long enough since i read the book i don't remember a lot of the specific instances of corruption but a lot of it from what i remember is well i i need to do x and the only way to do it is off the books or outside the law yeah. i'm not hurting anyone i'm doing favors for my friends i'm strengthening my relationships therefore it's yeah. good for my career so there's like a lot of i guess convenient conflicts of interest yeah absolutely. and i think we're we're all guilty of those but yeah that there you're right there's a more sort of a it's more of a blurred a blurred yeah, line which um, has always been this case with you know this 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 whole thing about this this word guanxi connections it 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 very happily bestrides a whole gamut of of, of levels of of um back scratching to outright corruption all of which are, are essentially just part of how things get done yep and i guess some listeners might might not know others we're explaining the obvious but a lot of it is uh, conveyed through food this i think this is not a bad book if you're looking for descriptions of yummy uh chinese food yeah braised noodles and then there's this extraordinary country feast of the the eight was it the eight delicacies or whatever yes yeah actually that reminded me i was a point i didn't quite get to about Li De Lin. um he so he's I said he's this sort of angelic figure. And I think there's a very it's maybe you read between the lines to see it, but I think the corrupt sort of figures he meets early on do something very nasty. Perhaps they're not consciously aware they're doing it, but I think they are and this is a nasty word. I'm just I'm using it because I can't think of a better one. I feel like they kind of groom him into becoming a corrupt figure by absolutely no doing, absolutely. doing a thing i believe it's like a common pattern in the world of the the perpetrator does shocking things to sort of transgress boundaries to dissolve them and normalize them uh so like i'll take you out for a meal well you don't have to thanks uh let me get you some things on the menu and it you know it turns out they're the most expensive ones oh you you shouldn't have done that uh you really shouldn't have but I'll I'll eat something to be polite, and it just normalizes. Yeah, yeah. 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 So. Although, uh, it, it, just as you were talking, it struck me one of the, the because this business because his favorite his favorite dish is is still a is still a, a humble dish of braised noodles, just um, noodles and gravy, and 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 he starts off going to the the local um, spit and sawdust restaurant around the corner from where he lives but as the story progresses and as um Liu Jin Ding gets his claws deeper into him to um they keep eating the same thing he says oh we'll just go out for noodles but they keep going to more and more expensive restaurants and these simple braised noodles they're still braised noodles but they have more and more expensive ingredients in them uh, so so it's so he's not sort of supposed to notice that that how much it's changed how he's gone from this this he's you know in his head he's still eating braised noodles but in fact He's now eating braised noodles with foie gras or whatever. Um, it's this this unconscious process 
of the option. The best way to multiply the price of a nice bowl of Chinese style big noodles, uh, Niro Mian, is first eat them in a normal hole in the wall place in mainland China, then fly to the UK and try and have an authentic bowl for £15 or £10. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to multiply. Actually, I just price. did that um, at this lunchtime. There we are. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, paying for memories. I feel like in my case, getting yes. getting the authentic yeah. stuff. Uh, anyway, before before we get lost in that reverie, um, it's it's kind of a tragic fall from grace style story. Maybe we don't want to um, spoil everything, but what would you say about the things that finally sort of do our uh, protagonists? I can't really say heroes, but what what does what does them in? What sort of things? For me, I feel like for, in Lita Lin's case, anyway basically all stems from his um how he screws up his love life i think yes it, eventually it's also the fact he just goes along with things i mean mm. you get the impression that this at the, the end he's, he's really still quite baffled by what's happened to him but the mechanism of it yeah. is uh is his is his, his weakness and because the, his second wife, who start, who's this 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 crude country girl who comes as his nanny, turns out to be sexually quite voracious, um, and he obviously rather likes that. There's some very odd stuff um, around that. But so yes, it's his his appetites perhaps are what betray him, because his his baser appetites, his 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 um, idealism and um, in, in want in his scientific work is not balanced by um, by any kind of, of really any restraint. Yeah, in his I, personal life. I think if you're raised to be nice and gentle, you have hard lessons to learn that you can be nice and passive for so long, but then eventually being passive will cause you to be, you know, irresponsible and get yourself and others in trouble. And being passive is no basis for a good relationship if a relationship is in is indeed what no. you want. And and that and that's his problem. He is essentially he's but he is a, a he's he's not proactive in anything except his own work. So yes, yeah, so that's 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 his downfall. The um. Liu Jinding, one of the, the I, I was particularly pleased when I came up with the, the title for this translation because it's a, actually it's it's a, it's a three-way pun um, on because you have graft um, meaning hard work because some of them get where they are through hard work. You've got graft meaning corruption, but actually topping and tailing the book um, is the process that Liu Jinding's master gardener father undertakes of creating the perfect flowering plum bonsai tree and that involves grafting collecting a, a root bowl from deep in the Sichuan mountains and then finding the um the right um growing stock to graft onto it so the graft you get the whole story of this this um magical plant which is you know his his master work and and, and it's bonsai which is people should know a chinese craft not a japanese one um and in fact the word bonsai is is the Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese um, punzai, um, but it's you know phenomenally valuable things. These uh, and and so his this humble gardener's skill in in creating bonsai is actually is a kind of it's a pure thing and 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 it, it's perhaps the real value, which itself eventually gets subverted because this this magical masterwork that's created. Liu Jinding has his eye on it, thinking this is you know when I really need. To bribe somebody when when the crunch comes and I got to come up with the ultimate bribe, this bonsai tree is going to be my 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 um, ace in the hole. It's what I'm going to be able to produce because because no one else will ever have anything like it. But supposedly the, the the master gardener has 
uh, refined it so we can actually control when it flowers. So it's the perfect tree. And But at the end of the book, Liao Jinding finally turns to this to try and um, kind of buy his way out of trouble. Um, and it fails. So this perfect creation, when it's used for a, for a corrupt purpose, um, doesn't allow itself to be used like that, and it fails, and it ends up um, on a rubbish heap. Um, and so in that respect, if you're looking for a moral, you can say that graft doesn't work. You know, it, it doesn't pay off. It, it In the end, it fails. And in fact, in this book, everyone who's involved in, in the various layers of corruption comes to a, to a bad end of one kind or another. So I suppose it's a it's a morality tale as well. But I particularly like the elegance of the graft thing of the of the of this this bonsai tree being lovingly created, and then when it's misused, it refuses to to play ball. Yeah, there's some kind of clever response here about losing sight of the trees for the forest, yeah, wood for trees, or whatever. No, I don't think you'll have to work quite hard at that. I think. Yeah, yeah. I I, I mean I already did this first time around when we had a conversation like this for a Cinoist Books event for this book. But just again, it is genuinely uh, a great title. It's not a translation of the Chinese title. It has, it's it's got threefold significance in only five letters and it's one sharp, snappy syllable, graft, which I guess is great news for book, the book cover designer. You know, that's great, doesn't it? They don't yeah, have to... Yeah, that was, I think, this was, our, this was um, um, Cinoist Books' first um, venture into kind of high art, um, the woodcut. They 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 specially commissioned an artist to do the the, the woodcuts, the multi layer woodcuts, and I think it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, yeah, I think it is maybe their best cover. It's very nice. The, the interestingly, the main reason we had to because we, we we had some completely absurd discussions over the title, <laughs> um, because the Chinese title is completely untranslatable. Um, Ping Yuan Ke, is that right? Ping Yuan Ke. Yeah, Ping Yuan is fine. That's the that's the term for the central plains, the Yellow River Valley, the sort of the, the China's um breadbasket. Um but the word ke is is untranslatable here because it it I'm not even I do, I'm not really and even even um when Chinese colleagues when consulted weren't really quite sure what it meant. They could see what the title meant, but they couldn't quite tell you what what this word "cur" meant. It's like it can be a guest, it can be um, also things like, but it's not. And then it no, it, it so it, it it baffled us how to translate it. So we had to start casting around, and eventually happily settled on graft. But it's one of these you come across occasionally, well, not actually even just that occasionally Chinese things that you simply can't translate. Um, and actually, things that the Chinese—it's that I'm sure there are things in English that we know exactly what it means, but we can't can't explain why it means that or how it's come to mean that, or exactly all the nuances of it. And I think this—the the original title Ping Yuan Ke is one of those. Yeah, the, you know exactly what it means, apparently, if you're Chinese when you see the title, but but you can't explain it. Yeah, it has like multiple meanings that sort of do overlap but don't, and like a. Heart intraceable rhizomatic sort of way. Am I am I misremembering that it means something like kind of like a mensch, like a solid kind of uh, figure as well as a guest, or have I totally replicated uh, that inside my own head? No, you may be right. You may be right. <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to remember back to when to all the researches we did and how um... there'll be some uh, very literate uh, Chinese um, speaker 
screaming oh, yeah. at screaming at their phone right now. Saying, yeah, you you ignorant fools, of course it is. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and to that listener, hello. You are you are seen. You are <laughs> Thank heard. you for your contribution. Yes. <laughs> I, I I was hoping we'd get to that title. That that was um that was a very interesting thing to learn. Um I have my next section in these set of questions was going to be about justice. I was going to introduce the cop. We already did. But I was also going to ask if they're victimless crimes. But before I ask that, uh I thought we could talk about another sort of thematic character related thing that I found pretty um engaging in this book and i think i've seen it done quite engagingly in other similar books as well it's the way the characters wrestle with their guilt how they are able to like deny it uh, mm-hmm. how they are well, physically and sort of spiritually fly you know run away from from the guilt and how when they face it it really crushes them and yeah, I think because yeah. we were saying earlier on that they they don't really see that they've they're doing anything wrong mm-hmm. until, until they do <laughs> the cumulative effects mm-hmm. um, suddenly come home to them. Or, you know, with most of all on Lido Lin, who really doesn't have that much idea he's done anything terribly wrong. Yeah, um, I think the others, I. <sighs> I think that they all know their chances. I think Liu Jin Ding knows he's a chancer, um, mm. but he thinks he's he's a good one and he's going to get away with it. Yeah, I remember we have a scene Liu Jin Ding. He goes back home and, like, I think if I remember right, he has a bit of like a spate of madness where he feels like is it like a ghost is pursuing him or something? Yes, when he's it's I think he's feverish. Um right. and he's going back to hide out because they're after him. He's been he's been found out um through some complex detective work involving mobile phone cards that I didn't entirely follow myself. Um <laughs> but he's fled back to his village and he goes he want he's 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 obviously running a fever I think and he he wants he's going to hide out in his grandfather's old potting shed, his father's old potting shed. And there's there is this sequence of and when he's running across the fields when he's he's being feels he's being pursued by I can't think who it is now. But yes, it's it is it's a sort of nightmare sequence. Quite well rather well written, I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm struggling to think of really specific stuff from the book, but I remember thinking that, yeah, the sort of cavernous feeling of guilt is striking. Yeah. And I, I might be mixing this up with other books, but I feel like in Chinese lit I've read where a character sort of faces what they've done and what they've done to other people and what they've made of their life. I don't know if it's said explicitly, but I feel like the it's an acknowledgement that, oh yeah, I'm a mortal man. It's usually a man, isn't it? I'm a mortal man. I'm I am not untouchable. I'm completely touchable. I'm going to die one day, possibly very soon, if I get executed by my government. This is all my life is. And uh, it's I've turned it into a great big hole that I'm about to fall down. And I'm terrified and I'm ashamed and I'm sad. You know, it's... Um, yeah. And I feel like it. I maybe this maybe this says something about how I feel about my own mortality. But like a few times reading Chinese lit, and this book's one of them, uh, that hits me indirectly through these corrupt characters. Like, fucking hell, this is all there is, and this is what I've done with it. This is this is not good. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh well. I think I'm. I I think I've I've got too old for that now. Um. I think that might be a um a luxury of youth, perhaps. Mm. You'll become more sanguine about it later on. That's good. Yeah. I'm. I'm. I was kind of banking on that, but yeah. 
I mean, we know we all go through a period when we like to beat ourselves up, but then you discover that A, it's quite painful and B, it doesn't get you anywhere. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's sorry for where I'm at now. <laughs> so I just turned up that bit in the in the book. Um, and it, yeah, as an extended nightmare, it is an, almost a nightmare. It's ghost walls and black ghost, green ghost fire and black demons and things. Yeah, very powerful. Mm -hmm. a little bit sorry i just had to remind myself of it because oh, no. actually there's an awful lot goes on in this book when i when, when i was sort of thinking getting ready for this interview and i thought well i better make sure i know everything that happens and I, i've got the main bits right but there's an awful lot of little subplots and other sub stories and so on he really packs it in mm -hmm. yeah and it's not um doesn't feel like an epic either i'm not sure what the word count uh comes to but it's not um it didn't feel flabby to me it didn't feel like no. uber condensed or short um but no i, it, I don't yeah. think he i don't think he overindulges um i can t i was gonna say i can tell you the character count but uh, <laughs> oh, never mind. It, it wasn't one i think it must have been about two hundred and fifty thousand characters something like that right so that's some thoughts on on guilt and running away from it or not um but also, it's you know, corruption is not a strictly personal affair. Uh, it has effects on people and society. And I'll confess, I don't remember who the sort of victims of the crimes are, um, besides from like the public purse, with the exception of one one person who who winds up dead. But um, can like can you can you refresh my memory? Like, are we are we told sort of like? who in the public is getting screwed over by these dodgy deals like I, I know in the in the real china um of i don't know about the present day but certainly i believe this was a big one in the the the, the 90s and the noughties uh pollution a lot of pollution came down to corruption because you would you know would skimp on environmental protections yeah um money would change hands the economy would keep growing but um the environment suffers and the people who have to breathe the air and drink the water uh suffer I don't think there's anything um, too specific, except there is the there is the one episode of, of um, there's a big demonstration. This is when um, oh, that's right, yeah. Uh, and I'm trying. That's over land deals, I think. If in doubt, it's probably over land deals. Um, <laughs> right. So yes, I'm sure it is. That's right. And, and prom a promised development of of a site that was going to benefit all the the local residents, and it and it it never happens, or it happens in another way, and they they all get screwed out of there property and, and then then there's a there's a big protest and they're going to block the the main railway line and so on but it, it then gets it gets um it gets dispersed by the threat of using firearms i think the police it's not i don't think it's is it holy and dog is actually it kind of bluffs or is bluffed in, into threatening to use firearms and then also there's a fake arrest in which oh, yes. the um, the supposed the, the the crooked land agent or whatever is is actually taken away, but is but it's all it's all a bluff and so on. So yes, I mean the there aren't many. Um, I think that's the main um, example where you actually see who is um, who is being harmed by this corruption. But at the same time, there are winners there as well because some of the um, I think they're bribed to go and make um, false statements as well. So some people come out of it quids in because they've actually played along with the corruption whereas other the um so it's very mixed messaging there and it's not it's not a moralistic tale it's more of an observation i think i didn't i don't think um we don't know 
what what the author thinks that clearly i don't think he's saying look this is what's going on this is how it's going on make up your own minds i think uh, i don't think you have any you don't have any morality thrust down your throat in it no yeah there's no um magical solution presented um and it does it just feels like it's a piece of fiction that um takes real of takes what well, is inspired by real events follows a sort of realist principle of not veering into a fantasy that um satisfies the reader and doesn't prioritize representing the world it's just sort of a dramatization of real things that, that went on over the decades yeah i mean you can you can read it as a moral although tale. you are you kind of feel you're being invited to 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 pass judgment yeah 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 for sure um it's not it, it's not that, it, that that's not there and that that reading's not available it's just that it's not um doesn't go out of its way to tell you who's the goodie or even like at what point Vida Lynn could have gone down a different path. Um, it's, yeah. it's not a fable. Yeah. Um, so my next set of questions, I'm, tra- I'm trying to go along at the same sort of clip that Li Pei Fu did here. Um, <laughs> next set of questions was about translation. We already discussed the title. I was just wondering, just your your work as the translator, how did, how did translating this book uh, compare language-wise difficulty-wise, experience-wise, versus other books you've translated? Um, well, it was it, it it was more straightforward than some of the historical novels I've done, but that's, and they, because they tend to be quite literary, as it were, people try. Mm. So it was, it, as I remember it, it, it flowed quite smoothly. It was, I enjoyed translating it. And there were some, I may have missed this, the problem, one of the big problems translate, I find translating contemporary novels is when they sit in the countryside and you have sort of bits of dialects and things thrown in and what you oh, do yeah. with that. Um, and there is quite a lot of, of, of discussion, of particularly of, of um, vulgarities. Uh, Chinese, see, English is such a, a, a poor language. When you want to be rude or vulgar or obscene in English, you're really quite limited in your choice. Whereas Chinese is much more um, flexible and has many more interesting things, which you simply can't. If you translate them literally into English, they they just sound ridiculous or nonsensical, and so you're reduced to to using a few um, yeah. well worn words and phrases. And I don't like the idea. Of, I I can't see any way of, um, as it were, translating dialect convincingly. Yeah, I was going to um, say I can, if you, the probably a lot of the richest curses. Uh, in English, come from yeah regional dialects. Yeah. Like I'm from Scotland, there are some. There's plenty of good yeah uh, nasty things to call someone. And the Irish as well, much richer than 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 we are in those. Sure, but like English regions as well, like um, Cockneys, Scousers. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. they've got no, plenty I'm, of mean yeah. things, but they're going to sound very weird coming out of a Chinese. Uh, that's that's the problem. You can't say, oh well, let's try. They're they're what's the equivalent of this? They're they're sort of broad yokel types. So let's make them West Country. And start throwing West Country phrases in because it will just sound stupid. Yeah, so, you're throwing the West Country people under the bus as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's that's always a bit of a challenge, and I think I, it probably loses. I think in translation, it loses a bit of the richness of the original text there because all you can all I can do is 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 sort of coarsen my language slightly and and so on, but it's never going to have the full flavour, which is slightly frustrating because it would be nice if it did. And I'm sure that I miss bits. Are there there are there are nuances in there that that, that I don't get um, and should, um, but overall, it, no, it was um, it was a pleasure to translate. Actually, he writes very 
patronizing. He writes very nicely. Um, he he writes he writes well and fluently, and it, there's nowhere it, nothing brought me up short thinking how am I going to make that sound good in English or or whatever. So which is always a good sign, you know, it flows because if the thought flows. It doesn't matter which what language it is, as it were. You're going to be able if 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 it's coherent and 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 in its original language, you're going to be able to make it coherent and flowing in 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 the new in the target language. It's where you get. I, I'm naming no names. I'm the novel I'm currently translating, which has actually been turned into a, a, a TV soap opera and a film, and it very much seems to be written. It's a screenwriter writing, um, and it's much harder to translate it well. Because, again, reading in English, um, Linda LaPlante, for instance, writes brilliant TV series, but her novels are terrible. <laughs> um, the English, it doesn't work. It works brilliantly for, for screenplays and so on, but actually as novels, it doesn't. And it's the same with that. And, and it's very difficult to take something that, that doesn't flow well in its original language and make it into something that does flow well in English. Whereas mm-hmm. Graft, Lipe, Fool, there, there, was, there was no such problem. It... it, it uh, no, it was a pleasure to translate. Yeah, I, this is not a, a point about the book or about Chinese lit, but an observation, I guess, as a, a writer and an editor um, about spoken uh, language. The dialogue in a book, you know, uh, written in prose, wouldn't work if you transplanted it one for one to a TV show. No. Like you said, TV dialogue in a book would be not a good book. And if you directly take the words we speak and try and put them on the page they're an absolute mess yes. um, oh yeah yeah. Word been, salad. yeah yeah i've been working on a, a transcript actually i had two little uh, little what am i talking about i had two interns uh who were volunteering sort of part-time over february on the podcast and they both uh produced a transcript and i've been um sort of tidying up one of the drafts recently and um, I've realized if I want this transcript to be good, I have something like the translator's dilemma. I can make it true to how I actually said the sentences <laughs> and have it be terrible English, or I can adapt it so that it stops being a great transcript, but becomes more beautiful English. Um, yeah. So yeah, these things are always, uh, I think yeah. I, I can't speak for a translator's perspective. I feel like you can think of it as the language, the way language works, conspiring against you and always never being perfectible or you can just think of it as a gift as a way to um make the sentences uh beautiful and hone them even more <laughs> yeah i mean certainly it, it it strikes me whenever i'm writing <clears throat> translating dialogue and i look at it and i think well yeah that's not a bad translation but actually as you say no one would ever say that yeah you, know, you try saying that in a conversation and just you know it would it would sound it just doesn't sound right. So you, no, you're right. You can't you can't actually reproduce. Well, you can. I mean, obviously you can. You can reproduce spoken word in in writing, but it um, for it to read well, um, you have to compromise. Yeah. Going on another tangent, did, I don't know if you heard about uh, there was a TV show. I think it was a Netflix show, Wednesday, all about the character Wednesday Adams from the Adams family. I didn't watch it. My girlfriend did, but I saw a very funny article um, where the star of the show, the young woman playing the girl Wednesday, decided to just act like a spoiled Hollywood star and refused to speak a lot of the lines as they were written in the script because a lot of it was, um, I guess, corny. And Mm -hmm. she would just stop, look at the director, the producer and say, 
no one talks like this. My character wouldn't talk like this. I'm going to make it more natural and more normal. Because yeah, it's the, just the principle of no one talks like this. This is, <laughs> this is stupid. Yeah. Hold on a minute. Like that's not a bad principle. Um, to there. I mean, good for her. I would say. Yeah. If she could make it work. Mm -hmm. Right. So our final question in this translation section, it's really a freestyle one. I just wanted to ask you, since you've got a lot of translation and education around Chinese, uh, all things Chinese culturally under your belt, do you have a personal perspective on the craft and the business of translating Chinese literature? <laughs> it's it's a very apposite question because I'm going to have to start thinking about it properly. Um, I've just uh, I'm going out, thankfully, to to, to China in May. Um, I, it's been you know, three years not going there, having been going sort of twice mm. a year. Um, and I set up my own trip, and then um, kind of word got out, and I've now been asked to do two lectures when I'm out there um, in in Xi'an. Um, oh, cool about uh, and and um regarding actually precisely that i think which means i'm going to have to try and quantify and my my attitude because actually i i am the least academic of translators i don't have any theories about how you should go about translating what you're doing when you're translating i just do it because i like it well, I love it actually. I mean, I've been translating things since I was at school, um, so it's very nice. It's nice when you get paid for something you like doing. But I, I've been lucky to be mostly to be offered novels that that I think have have something to say about um, Chinese, China, the country, and China, the people, um, to an audience that misunderstood a lot of where there are a lot of misunderstandings. So my my only aim is to be as faithful as I can to how I read the original. Um, now, you can see, I have no idea, because I'm a Westerner and, and I'm not a native speaker, I don't know whether um, I'm actually reading these 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 texts correctly, um, or am I understanding them the way a native reader would understand them. So, but what I strive to do is get as close to what I feel the flavor of the original is. And that's basically it. Um, you know, Translating Chinese is—it's an odd business. Translating Chinese, um, you know, I sit there because I, I chunk up my text and I'll translate I'll ha and then so I'll have the, the the Chinese text above and then I'll be, have my translation underneath, and I'll sometimes just sit there for a minute and stare at it and thinking, how on earth did I get that out of that? <laughs> um, you know, it just looks so unlikely. Um, and it's I, my part is to is to provide that the catalyst that transforms one into the other um, to the best of my ability. And it's often, I find the, the way character, I've, I've had an increase, in, as the longer you spend with characters, the more kind of um, hypnotic they become. Um, but I find that in the end, you're not translating, you're certainly not translating character by character. Uh, you tend to, characters create pictures, I think, in your head in a way that words don't. Um, and I will then have a picture in my head of what this particular sentence also is saying, and then I have to describe that picture. I mean, it's not quite like that, but it's um, there's more. Of, I think there's there's more of an interpretive process involved with Chinese than with any other translation, which is why you have to be very 
careful, but it's also what makes it so so entertaining and so so enthralling to do. But no, I don't. I don't. I I, I can't imagine treating translating as an academic subject. I think it's a it's a it's a craft. Um, right. And the more the more you try and dissect it, um, the less faithful you'll be to 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 the original. So you just have to you have to let the texts talk to you. I think is all I say. Yeah, you could say if you try to instrumentalize it too practically for your own benefit, it will wither and die, not unlike a grafted plant. Very good. Yes, but <laughs> yes. No, it will. It it, it you, you you can't force it. And right. you can't make it into something it isn't, and so on. And some, um, but it's, you know, I'm I'm kind of I'm obsessive. It's her, I I just sit happily all day, translating away, um, and sometimes I get frustrated and so on. But overall, it's just because it it engages so many different aspects of your of your um, both your intellectual abilities and your creativity. Um, if if you have the kind of verbal mind, um, mm. I think it's. It, it's as important how good your English is as how good your Chinese is when you're translating. Um, but you get wrapped up in it. Interestingly, my, my wife has just started working as an editor for, for Sinoist as well. All right. She used she used to, um, she doesn't have any Chinese, um, but she, she's, she's read some of my books and so on. But um, she's now got completely caught up in it as well. <laughs> and so we'll have the house at the moment, we'll have me downstairs translating, and she's upstairs editing away. Um, but you don't. It, it, you get you get swept up into it, I think, and that and in a way that's quite hard to explain. Um, but it's I. I mean, I think it's a huge privilege to be to be given the chance to do this. Um, and and so you have a duty to get it as right as you can, and that means drawing on lots of different aspects of um, of of your own experience, particularly. I mean, not just linguistic. I mean, I I I as a younger. But I read voraciously, but most a lot of it was crap. I you know I, I don't I don't go for the highbrow greatly. But you learn a lot from reading both bad literature or stuff that is dismissed as popular fiction, but which in fact is actually really good writing. Um, and that's that being having that kind of background to draw on as well. That's, I think that's what's so satisfying about it is is the chance it gives you to draw on so many different aspects of things. Absolutely, this podcast is very pro uh, middle brow. The, excellent the meaty middle for sure what you said about the sorts of the transfiguration side of translation at least from chinese to english where like it's kind of hard to say how the characters go through the magical black box and come out as a as um, a latin alphabet language mm. and that you you were saying that your sort of black box in the middle there is your ability to create the mental images there's a thing i heard about recently i think through podcasts a condition called aphantasia which is the inability to voluntarily create a mental picture in your head. People with aphantasia uh, can't picture a scene, person, or an object, even if it's very familiar. And I feel like even just trying to imagine what that's like is mm. a sort of an insight into like how, like how do we how do we write? How do we yeah, um, yeah. how do we do anything yeah. creative? And, and, and what we take for granted and something yes, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah what's left when you take that away and uh, you know people who have aphantasia are more or less normal people but presumably they go through certain mental challenges that that bit differently or that much differently from other people yeah yeah, yeah. that's a bit that's a bizarre thought 
Yeah, and there's a whole uh, other different podcast we could use to talk about that, but <laughs> instead I'll take us to the miscellaneous section. Um, first miscellaneous question for you. Could you suggest a Chinese word of the day for this episode? Yes, I, I, was, trying, I was trying to think of that, and, and oddly enough, a character which isn't necessarily directly related, um, and I'm just desperately trying to remember which tone it is now, um, xiu, uh, xiu, fourth tone, meaning refined or elegant um or tan which um and the character it's it's a it's an odd looking character um and it's form it's, it's on the top is the the five stroke character for for grain and on the bottom is the um second half of of uh denai milk so you've got grain and milk um because apparently yeah. the original meaning of this character was um to to Put forth shoots to grow, to blossom, and so on. And the idea is, it's a stalk which is then producing something that is nutritious in milk. At least that's one derivation going back to to to, to seal forms. But then it's it's more common usage is is this something being um, refined and elegant and and um, you know at the at the top of its game kind of thing. And um, but I thought that the the growing bit, the fact that that something that is behaving that is doing what it did, comes naturally to it the, the, this thing that's growing a plant a, um, a plant putting out flowers or or a, um, a stem of wheat putting forth its its grain um the meaning is somehow transferred that's something that is right and proper and actually and beautiful in itself um and so that becomes the kind of extended meaning and it goes back to the plants and uh, Lee Lin's obsession with with um with grain and making grain produce it's that the two elements of that character seem to encapsulate um what he's after and it just happens i kept i've kept coming across that character in in, in things i'm translating recently so it sprang to mind it's an odd but it's an odd looking character it's not a particularly elegant one which is odd because it should be with that meaning it's another thing there's not an elegant character at all it looks a bit unbalanced i think um but there you are so there's a there's a thought for you so so that's amazing. Um, I'm going to see if I've found the right one here. Thinking them 50-50, I've got it right or wrong. Uh, can you see this character? Yeah, hang on, let me just open it up. That's the one. Ah, yeah. Brilliant, got it right. That. Magical. It does look a bit like a plant as well. Anyway, it's, <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's rather fun. And it's characters. I mean, they, what characters are one of the great your most best friends when you're trying to teach kids Chinese because they, they love characters and so on and then telling stories around them right um, yeah so anyway so there so, we are that's I think that's quite a good choice sure and while you were thinking of it I looked up how to say aphantasia um <laughs> apparently it's and I'm gonna slaughter the tones but it's Huan Jue Zheng and oh I've got it in traditional Huan, Huan right. I, was is taught, the... I was taught in traditional right i'm that old it's juan is in like uh Huan, the or like fantasy or fiction mm. Jue, i think is in Jue de? i'm not sure Jue it's de, got, uh, feelings uh, to feel yeah uh, it's got the it's the bot the bottom the is the like it looks like the jian to see jian. yeah 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 jie, yeah yeah and jung I, I don't recognize i don't know why i'm describing it i can just send it you <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, that's a Fantasia anyway. Did you send it? Oh, there we are. 
Okay. Okay. So the, yes, that's that's the disease radical. Yes. Okay. Ah, right. Okay, that would make sense. The last bit, yeah. The more you know, I'm probably going to forget that um, before I go to sleep tonight. <laughs> anyway, um, next miscellaneous question. It's a piece of music you'd pair with the story. So let's say they're going to make a graft a movie. Um, what would you pick for a significant part of the soundtrack? Now I. I thought and thought about this, um, and I didn't come up with anything, uh, mainly because I have very bizarre taste in music. Um, no, that's fine. <laughs> You're not alone. Uh, so no, I couldn't. I, I I'm afraid that I'm. Um, I'll, I'll I'll try and think of something still. But I was, I I spent a good half hour trying to to think what would I what would I pair with this. I mean, no, I don't know. I just don't know. No, I'll come. I, 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 if I have a brilliant idea, I'll let you know. But I <laughs> no. Okay, no worries. I I had one and then I forgot it and I remembered it again and th I thought of another one in between. The one I uh, originally thought of, it was going to be something from the album Undone by The, the Roots. They're a, a hip-hop group whose, I guess, kind of gimmick is that they're all, all of their beat that goes that the rap goes on top of is made by studio instruments rather than like produced beats and as they've gone on they've become more and more artistically ambitious undone is an album a concept like a you know like a like a prog rock band from the 70s they had a concept album so that sort of tells a story um and it's the story of a guy who rises from like the hood somewhere in the states and throws his um morals out the window and rises to wealth and experiences all the pleasures of the world but you know near the end of his life feels hollow and i think dies and we get some of the stories are from the perspective of the afterlife mm. um looking back so it's very existential and i was trying to pick like which track from that would be a good fit for um for graft i think the one i picked was make my I did it all for the money, Lord. It's what it seems. Well, in the world of night terrors, it's hard to dream. They hollering cash rules, everything. It's call it cream, because when it rises to the top, you get the finer things. Ocean fronts, rolling blunts, with model chicken saying grace over lobster steak. Like, please forgive us for riding business with camera plates. Too busy looking backwards for jackets to pump my brakes. For help sign to symbolize the lie that hunger takes. Addicted to the green, if I don't ball, I get the shakes. I give it all for a peace of mind, for heaven's sakes. My heart's so heavy that the ropes that hold my casket breaks. Because everything that wasn't for me, I had to chase. They told me to that the ends won't justify the means. And he told me at the end it won't justify the dreams that I've had since child. Maybe I'll throw it. So I'm going to say it's make my, um, it's the full, the full line in the lyrics is make my departure from the world. So I'd be putting this near the end when um, one of the characters is sentenced to death for their crimes and is staring down the barrel. And then the other one I thought of was a bit more, I don't know, also, also a, a hip hop track, actually. I guess hip hop is the modern genre for like the highs and lows of debauchery. <laughs> it's yes, um yes certainly it's exponents would, would suggest yeah 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 
um, yeah, in its current iteration anyway. Um, so the track is Swimming Pools by Kendrick Lamar. Then somebody said to me, nigga, why you babysitting? Only two or three shots. I'ma show you how to turn it up a notch. First you get a swimming pool full of liquor, then you dive in it. Pool full of liquor, then you dive in it. I wave a few bottles, then I watch you all flock. All the girls wanna play, they watch. I got a swimming pool full of liquor and they dive in it. Pool full of liquor, I'ma dive in it. Pool. Frank. Headshot. Frank. Sit down. Frank. I think it's, I had a look at the lyrics, I think it's sort of largely about alcoholism. It's about a guy at a party whose uh, way of coming to enjoy the party is just by knocking back one shot after another of vodka. The main hook is you get a, you get a swimming pool of liquor and you, full of liquor and you dive in. But I think if you sort of take the metaphor for like, um, the only way to go is to fall in deeper, that's that's a fit for um uh, so yeah once you're right. yes just keep swimming as it were yeah keep swimming keep diving deeper keep descending and enjoy whatever pleasures it brings you until the proverbial uh, liver failure fair enough <laughs> yeah. i just as you were um talking i just i can offer you an ironic one from another generation excellent which would be john denver's country roads okay country roads take me home you've frozen on take me, me home. Sure. Yes, I'm still here. Yeah, no, yes. So the country road take me home to the place that I belong. Unfortunately, it's in West Virginia, but it's this kind of <laughs> trying to get back to a an ideal that doesn't really exist because mm-hmm. that's that's you know because the old Ding ends up running back, running back home. Oh, yeah. actually, there's another song. Anyway, yes, never mind. Got me thinking now, but no, I I haven't really got one. Okay, no worries, no worries. Right, there's our there's our tracks. Listeners will have been able to enjoy little clips of those. Um, final miscellaneous question, the bonus question. So these are ones I strip out and upload to the show's Patreon. So listeners listening to the main episode, you're just going to hear after I've asked the question. If you want to hear the question, it will be going up to the Patreon, patreon.com slash T-R-C-H-F-I-C, Church of Fick. Um, So the, the question for you, James, is this. How would you compare depictions of corruption in modern Chinese lit with other depictions that you've come across, be it in film, in film, in literature from other places? Do you think the Chinese has a special quality or do you see parallels? Uh, I think I think I can wrap up the bonus question just there and take us to the further reading questions, the, just the final final phases of the interview. So um, if listeners want more more like graft, where would you point them? Um, well, if they can hang on. Um, <laughs> although I don't, to be honest, I mean, I, I, 
Uh, I don't know, except for the, the say the two books that I'm I, the one book I I finished translating, which was Zhang Ping's um, Jiezi Choice, um, which I think was made into a film or two films even. Um, yes, uh, which is 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 uh, very much a, a, it's just a, a, a similar. It's one man stand. It's it's an honest man taking a stand against. Uh, against corruption, which he discovers is in fact all around him and into his family, um, including his wife. Um, but that's not published yet. But it will be. I think it's it's going through the editorial stage at the moment. But you can you can find the film. Um, if I can't remember what the film, well, I think the film is simply called Jueza, the Choice, and I think you can find it on some streaming services. The other one, the one that I'm working on at the moment, um, which is called. Um, Jinmin the Taichan, the property of the people, um, which is part of a, a two-part series um, by Joe Mason, and the first part was in the name of the people, I think, which has been translated by someone else. And then there's this, uh, the the property of the people, and this um, I would recommend actually um, watching. You can get it on Netflix. You can find the sort of thirty-six. Um, Episode um, soap opera, a mini a television miniseries, um, not so many actually, um, and it's it's called Breakout in in Chinese. But I think if you put people's property, if you search people's property, you'll find it, and that's actually quite entertaining. And again, it's it gives you a it gives you a look into the scale of this thing and the the complexities and so on. I, I, but in terms of other literature, I'm afraid I can't I can't point you anywhere. That's that's fair enough. Yeah, I I was going to say again. I'm not sure how much corruption fiction I've read that I have that I can think of would all be um, mostly by Chinese writers of this generation. And I think I would say to listeners, if you read Graft and you want kind of more, more of um, corruption in the the Northern Plains um, by a certain type of guy, and you want a bigger serving, a longer book that you can sort of get lost in. Empires of Dust uh, oh, yes. and is, yeah, yeah. you know, it's a nice case of similar but not the same. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. It takes, it's a slower burn, I suppose, but you have a guy from Humble Beginnings who gets wrapped up in both business and government uh, in reform era China. But it's it's a very different, I guess it's more of a personal journey and it, feel, it felt more countryside to me. It felt much less infected by... Um, urban influences and how sophistication uh urban sophistication can feed into corruption and whatnot but um yeah i think that's uh an interesting uh sibling text from the same uh in, available in translation from the same publisher it's an older book i guess that's that's a difference yes, I, I don't know when that was written because 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 graft was only written in 2000 and published first published in 2017 i think right yeah so graft is fairly recent really yeah yeah, and that's published in the original Chinese. We mean, um, so yes, the yes, gap. Yes, yeah, the graph came out in twenty in twenty twenty two. Yeah, right. Yeah, so that's that's about all we can do for that question. <laughs> I'll ask you what you're reading just now for a final question. Interesting. I don't actually because I spend all my day staring at um, at text on screen. I I tend not to do so much reading now, but I do a lot of listening. So especially about walking the dog. Um, I have I have audiobooks going all the time, and I get through. And the one I've I've just finished, and actually I suppose in some ways it's quite relevant, is um, 
Rung Chang's um, biography of the Empress Dowager. Oh. Um, to see, um, you know, Rung Chang was the, the 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 author of Wild Swans, which is what she's best known for. But she also she with her husband John Halliday wrote a, a, um, a biography of Mao. Um, I won't talk about that too much, but um, the, her, the, there aren't many serious works on, on Empress Sisi, uh, who's probably one of the most important figures in certainly in the in the last two hundred years of Chinese history, if not in the last five hundred or thousand years. She's an extraordinary woman, um, and particularly relevant because she was she came to power, as it were, at a time when Western um, influences first really began to make themselves felt in a in a in a um in a seriously harmful way in china um and all sorts of internal internal pressures as well it's it's a fantastically researched book um some of the conclusions that are drawn wouldn't necessarily agree but it's a it's a it's um Zizi became a great hate figure in this in in the west and you know she, she was sort of the model of this this evil um chinese Woman and there were there were cartoons of her. If you one great field of research is is, is car, cartoons, uh, Western cartoons of China in the in the late nineteenth century, oh, and dear. the depictions are dreadful, really awful. And and um, she was in fact an extraordinary woman um, and deserves rehabilitation. The Chinese demonized of the communists early on demonized her as well as the sort of final expression of the corrupt imperial regime. But but she's being gradually rehabilitated and her her place in Chinese history in, in in preserving the integrity of China when the, when the West was intent on carving it up can't be over overestimated. Um, so that's I, I'd recommend it. It's it's but it's a it's a bloody long book I have to say. Um, so not great for carrying around, but very good in audio form. Um, but I mean equally good reading and well illustrated and, and as I say phenomenally well researched. So that's that. Not not great literature, but fascinating subject. Otherwise, as I say, I, my 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 literally my fiction reading stroke listening is determinedly lowbrow. If uh, listeners want a real trip, just try em- entering these three words into Google Image Search: Empress Sushi, That's C I X I cartoon, and there's a whole <laughs> spectrum. <laughs> It's quite extraordinary. Some of them. There's a there's an extraordinary one in, in, in from a New York paper or from an American paper in which her face is superimposed on that of a of a, um, a notorious female murderess called Mrs. Knack, I believe. Mrs. Knack. The, anyway, the, the the Google search. There's, there's, I'm there's getting... a picture of her with sort of blood dripping from her fingernails and and slaughtering with heads on spikes and so it's quite extraordinary. I think I'm seeing that New York one. Yes. So the Google image search, um, I won't spoil it completely, but it does turn up some of those uh, turn of the 19th into 20th century cartoons. But then there's modern culture in there as well. There's like uh, some kind of American looking uh, like kids TV cartoon. Um, There's a, uh, how could I say this? Um, Creepy sexualized like anime girl um so she there's a reddit um little cartoon character dressed up as sushi it's it's all there and you'll also you'll also probably find the still from um of, of dame flora robson playing sissy in 54 days in peking probably in there somewhere with charlton yep. heston as as the noble american savior and so it's all about that that's about the boxer uprising right
the cumulative output of humankind as filtered through Google always a wild ride. Um, I'll just to close us off. I'll mention um, what I'm reading, which is actually nothing because I finished um, the book I was reading, uh, Roland Barthes' Mythologies, yesterday or two days ago, and all I've read between then is I think one. Uh, I read one academic article. Um, it was a review over an overview of um, the translator Howard Gold. Blacked output. So I'm now probably going to download the next book to my Kindle I'm going to read, and it's going to be one I'll be covering on the show. Uh, Columbia University Press sent me a novel in translation called Puppet Flower, a novel of 80, 1867 Formosa. Um, oh. A historical novel set in Taiwan. So I they, they sent me this thing quite a while ago, um, you know, with the understanding I'd, um, you know, cover it on the show. So I feel like I'm paying off a little bit of that debt now, at least talking about it at the end of this episode. But that that is forthcoming. That's that'll be in the queue at some point once I've read it. Anyway, that's that's what I'm going to be reading, and that's about it for our chat. Um, anything you want to fire off, James, before I say thank you? No, I think I think you've probably heard more than enough of my voice by now. Anyway, but no, yeah. it's been it's been a thoroughly enjoyable experience. It's always nice to talk about these things to people who know what you're talking about. It's not always the experience you have. I'm very aware that um, time only moves forwards, and I haven't been back to China since I last left. So I'm I'm glad that reading the fiction is compensating to some extent for actually being there. Well, get there. That's the only thing. Get there. Uh-huh. One day, yes, one day. Anyway, thank you very much, James. I'll uh, I'll I'll end our call, but or I'll end our interview by hitting the record button again. But yeah, thanks thanks for coming yeah. on. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Lovely. And we have come to the end of the show. So once again, a huge thank you to James for coming on and talking about this very interesting book. I say it every time, and I say that I say it every time, every time. But yeah, it was a great discussion, and it this was a book I genuinely, genuinely enjoyed reading quite a lot. Now, if you genuinely enjoy this podcast, then perhaps you'd like to consider materially supporting it. It does cost me money every month to cover the hosting fees, and it does take up quite a lot of my time as well. And you can get something wonderful in return if you support the show via Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash trichific, T-R-C-H-F-I-C, there are over 100 I'm going to say it's sitting around 130 or something now. Bonus episodes. Some are short little bonus answers. Others are me kind of going off solo for up to 30, sometimes even 40 minutes. Sometimes just 15 about a book that I've read or I'm reading. Could be non-fiction. Could be something about China but written in English. Or it could be the, you know, the golden standard, the translated Chinese fiction. All sorts of stuff is up there and you can get it for minimum one, I forget if it's one pound or one USD, but anyway, there's various tiers, but the lowest one gets you everything because, you know, I'm not fancy enough to have lots of clever different uh, content layers. Uh, if you want to just sign up temporarily as well, like if you want to sign up for one or two months, download ev- ev- download everything and then flee the scene, you know what, I won't be mad. And even if I was mad, I don't really have the means to stop you. So that's an option. If you'd rather not sign up as a subscriber, if that sort of thing stresses you out like it does me, you can also make a one-off contribution uh, via Buy Me A Coffee. Links to both Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee are up on the Trichific homepage at trichific.com. Just click support and you'll see the two magic buttons there. Okay, money, begging for money aside, 
What's the best thing you can do for the show? Well, if you've been listening for a long time and you don't skip these outros, you'll know the best thing you can do, IMO, is to spread the word. So tell your friends, tell your family, tell your Laosha, your teacher, whoever the sort of James Trapp educator figure is in your life, and do please tell the mentor who is teaching you the ways of corruption, the Darth Sidious, to your Darth Vader, and I don't know if I I can use Obi-Wan and Anakin again, because Obi-Wan's a good guy, but you know, the Obi-Wan to your Anakin, but in terms of generating Guan Xi in order to get rich and screw over the people. Yeah, but that's it. We're, we're done serving the people. We're now, <laughs> we're now screwing over the people on this show. And on that sinister note, uh, Sai Chien. Oh, yeah,